Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. I told you at the beginning of our series, Paul spends these 11 chapters in a systematic, theological way unpacking the story of the gospel and the beauty of what it means to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And so this week, next week, and on the 29th, we will end that section, that systematic theology section on the gospel. And then we'll move into what we might call the more applicational or practical section. Therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And we'll see what that means. But as we come to chapter 11, we sort of come to the pinnacle of the book of Romans. And we'll end in two weeks with that doxology that we proclaim every single week from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. But we have to get there first. We have to understand what gets Paul to that point where he erupts with such doxological exaltation and praise. And we begin that last part of that journey here today in the first part of Romans 11. The question for you this morning, how do you respond when things are difficult. I think everybody's response to difficulty or obstacles in life is different. It's as different as our three, almost four children, and I'm sure those of you with children and grandchildren and your own personalities or you and your spouse can see how different people with different personalities deal with difficulties and obstacles differently. Are you the kind to push through stubbornly against all odds? Are you the kind to quickly get angry And have to calm down before you think of a way to work through this? Are you the type just to give up, throw your hands up in despair and surrender and throw the thing down? Or whatever it is, I'm picturing one of my children with the remote control as they throw it down. One of my favorite games to play is Monopoly. Nobody ever plays Monopoly with me. Because everybody hates Monopoly, apparently, except me. Monopoly is infamous for family fights. I think there are entire YouTube channels and compilations dedicated to people overturning tables and getting mad at their family and ending the Thanksgiving dinner and anger and fighting. Maybe even entire families have been split because of Monopoly. I don't know. That'd be terrible. But there is a point in the game of Monopoly where if you're going to win, you really start winning. And if you're going to lose, you really start losing. And it does, it does seem to bring out those emotions when you hit those difficulties in the middle of that game. And you really do see people's personalities come out and how they tend to deal with difficulties. Not just in Monopoly, which seems silly, but in all of life. In our society and in our culture and our world... Maybe you're looking around right now and you're reading the news and you're following on social media and you see the stuff that's out there and you're tempted to give up. And you say, there's no righteousness in the world. There's no fear of God in the world. Our culture is gone. Our society is gone. The world is gone. All the news is bad all the time. And maybe you're tempted in that to give up in despair and maybe even walk away from the faith because after all, what's the use? Well, Paul understands that there is a temptation to despair. 
Paul understands even in his time this temptation to fall into unbelief because of the sin and the wickedness and the rebellion all around us and that was all around him. Paul felt this especially and uniquely maybe for his own people. As a Jew, Paul lamented that many of the Jews in his day had already rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Back in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in love. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. We hear there Paul's anguish and his pain for his own people who to that point had largely rejected Jesus and the gospel. I wonder if we don't look around and feel that same way too sometimes. We feel all alone in this, maybe in your workplace, in your family, amongst your friends. Maybe you feel like you're alone in that as a believer in Jesus Christ, a believer in the gospel. Maybe we look at our church in the midst of Dumas, in the midst of our nation. We see Christianity in the midst of the world and we think, man, we are just a small remnant of righteousness in the world. On one hand, the Bible is honest about this. The Bible is honest about sin and unbelief and the wickedness of the world around us. The Bible presents us with that reality, unvarnished and undiluted. The world is wicked, the world is dying, the world is perishing apart from faith in Christ. The Bible tells us that. But on the other hand, the Bible assures us of victory. The Bible assures us of the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the seas. And we look at those two and we don't see how they can be reconciled. How do we deal with those two concepts? The wickedness and the unbelief of the world, but the glory and the triumph of the gospel. We're going to deal with some of those hard concepts today as we continue dealing with these hard concepts from chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11. Unbelief, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of God's hardening, the doctrine of what we call reprobation. There's a fun word for you. But as we conclude this overview of salvation, chapters 1 through 11, we're going to see the glory of the promise of God. We see Paul not despairing, not lamenting, not weeping, but he ends chapter 11 with glory and with worship and with exaltation. Why? Because he comes to the conclusion, as should we, that God is sovereign. And he remembers that God will save his people. And he remembers that God is working all things, Romans 8, 28, for their good and for his own glory. Let's begin reading in Romans chapter 11 today, just the first 12 verses. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left that they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at this present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. 
As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a uh, retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs bent forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Let's go through Paul's argument today about his own people and see how that applies to us today in the 21st century. Number one, Paul presents us with a reason for hope. A reason for hope. We start with a hard question. What is God doing? Especially in the midst of unbelief. We look in our day, we look in our own community, maybe in your own families, and you see unbelief and wickedness and a rejection of Christ, and you wonder, how is God working in that? What is the purpose behind that? As Paul was looking at his own people, the Jews, he asked the same question. What is God doing in this unbelief? For Paul, it hit close to home. He said, these are my brothers, according to the flesh. These are my people. And he asks in verse 1, I look at them and I ask, Paul says, has God rejected his people? Go back to chapter 9 and look at verse 6 here in Romans. Chapter 9, verse 6. Paul says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Look down at chapter 9, verse 31. Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, yet it did not succeed in reaching that law. Look at chapter 10 in verse 2. I bear witness with them. They have a zeal that's Israel for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And then look at chapter 10, verse 21. Of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The report doesn't look good for Israel at this point, does it? And so Paul asks the legitimate question. Having rejected God because they have rejected his Messiah, having rejected the gospel of grace in order to keep pursuing the law of works, has God rejected Israel? In verse 1, Paul is very clear using that word we've come to understand by now. Big time, mega no. By no means, God has not rejected Israel. Israel. You say, but wait, Paul, we've just gone through this whole thing. They've rejected Jesus. They've rejected the gospel. They've rejected you by and large, and they're clean to the law of works. Isn't that what we saw in the gospels? Every page is the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, rejecting Jesus and coming against Jesus. As we turn in the 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 Bible to the book of Acts, and we see in the synagogues that Christians are kicked out and those who embrace Jesus as their Messiah are removed and Paul is rejected and beaten and arrested and persecuted. 
As we see every step of the way, they have rejected the gospel. And as we see in the book of Acts, because of their rejection, Gentiles are welcomed in to the gospel. And so we would look at that and think, well, okay, that makes sense. Israel rejected God, so God rejected them, and now he has replaced them with the Gentiles. Is that what the Bible teaches us? And Paul says that is not the storyline at all. First example he gives us there in verse 1 is a personal example. Has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, Paul says. I'm a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, what about me? If God has rejected his people, what about me? I'm a Jew, and here I am preaching the gospel to you. If God had rejected his people, there would be no Paul. There'd be no Peter. There'd be no James, no John. Most of the apostles would not be included there. And so while the majority of the Jews at Paul's day and in our day may have rejected and reject Jesus and the grace of the gospel, not all have rejected Jesus and the gospel. And so God has not rejected them. Some believe. Some embrace the gospel. Paul says this is the way it worked for him. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. Paul said, look, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor of the church of God. I was an insolent opponent of the church of God, Paul says, but I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And in verse 14, he said, and the grace of God and the mercy of Jesus overflowed for me. They've overflowed, Paul says. And then he says this in, chapter, in verse 15. This statement is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And so Paul says, you want an example that God has not rejected his people completely? Look at me, a child of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, who has embraced Jesus as the Messiah by the mercy and the grace of God. Example number two Paul gives in verse two is a theological example. He says, God has not rejected this people whom he foreknew. Remember the foreknowledge of God back in Romans 8 and Romans 9? Back in Romans 8, verse 28, it says, All things work together for the good of those that love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, And verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Remember that unbreakable chain of salvation that starts with foreknowledge? God's foreknowledge, not of something that they would do. Not of some condition that they would meet that would cause him to choose them. But because he had chosen them in his grace, he knew them firsthand before all eternity. And just as much as that's true of you and me today, it's true of any Jew who would come to faith in Christ too. And Paul says those whom he foreknew, that same promise extends to them. That unbroken chain of salvation will never fade away. This is a certainty that God is working all things for their good. A certainty that if God foreknew them, he has predestined them. And if he's predestined them, he's called them and justified them and will glorify them. And what does the end of chapter 8 teach us? That nothing can separate them 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can stop that. And so Paul says, here's a theological example, that anyone who comes to faith in Christ, yes, Gentiles, but also Jews, will never be cast off from Christ. There's a third example, one that Philip read for us today in 1 Kings chapter 19. Look at the end of verse 2. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, I alone am left, and they seek my life. This conversation that God has with Elijah back in 1 Kings 19, uh, we didn't really set up the context for you earlier, but I want to do it now. This is after Mount Carmel. After that climactic scene in 1 Kings where Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal, to meet on the mountain in which God sends the fire and Yahweh sends the fire and hundreds of the prophets of Baal are slaughtered. This big victory for Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. The rain has returned after a long period of drought. According to Elijah, the prophet's word, this season of blessing and victory and glory for Elijah and for Yahweh. But how does Elijah respond? In fear running for his life into the wilderness, into a cave hiding from Ahab and Jezebel who want to kill him. If you would humor me just a minute, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings 19. It'll be on the screen for you too. In 1 Kings 19, verse 10, Philip read this for us. Verse 10, we see this complaint of Elijah. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, but the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek to take my life away. You hear Elijah's despair, don't you? I'm the only one left. Might have matched Paul's despair, maybe your despair. You look around, you see the unbelief and the unrighteousness and the wickedness in the world, and you say, it seems like I'm the only one left, that we're the only ones here. Verse 14 He shows up with the presence of God there and says the same thing. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek to take my life away too. You see, he rehearsed his speech, and then God showed up, and he gave God his speech. This is hopeless, Lord. I'm alone in this whole thing. Looking around, he thinks he's it. And there's no hope, and there's no comfort. What does God say to Elijah? Look at chapter 19 of 1 Kings, verse 16. After all those things appear to Elijah, and the Lord is not in them, that that small voice comes to him, and he says, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholai, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. You see what, how God responds? He, he doesn't really coddle Elijah, does he? I love that. That Elijah's here complaining and there's a pity party for himself. And, and two times God has asked, Elijah, what are you doing here? Oh, God, it's just me. I'm all alone in this. I'm all by myself. They've killed all your prophets. They've torn down on your altars. They're trying to kill me too. And God says, you know what? Why don't you get up and go back to work? Why don't you get up, strengthen your weak knees, strengthen your hands, and go anoint the king of Israel. 
I'll show you what I'm going to do here. Because there's a promise in 1 Kings 19, verse 18. 1 Kings 19, verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed down to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. See what God says? Elijah, get up. Go do what I've called you to do. You're not alone. I have a people for myself. You see that promise here? Do you see the words God uses? What does he say? I will leave 7,000. It's God's doing. In the midst of all this unbelief and idolatry and spiritual adultery, God says, I will work by my grace to leave 7,000. And Paul says here in Romans 11, verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Just as much as God said then, I will leave by my power, by my grace, by my election, God says I'll leave 7,000. Paul says now God is saying the same thing. I have a remnant chosen today, Paul, chosen by grace. It's not that these 7,000 in ancient Israel were so righteous. They were no more righteous than the others. Verse 6, Paul says, here's, here's what it comes down to. It's by grace. And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. We've been talking about this lately, haven't we? In the book of Romans, grace is this unmerited, unearned gift that it is the opposite of what you deserve. And if you were to clamor for what you deserve, your wages, remember what your wages, the paycheck would be because of your sin? The wages of sin is death. But thank God the gospel is not about getting what you deserve. It's about the free gift of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says that's what grace is all about. It's not what these 7,000 did to somehow merit God's favor and God's kindness to them. No, it's because of God's favor and kindness before the ages began that they don't bow the knee to Baal and they don't kiss the idol. And Paul says that is the exact same grace working to this day. That God is still calling and God is still saving whom he wills not according to works back in chapter 9 verse 11 we're reminded of Jacob and Esau right and before they were born and before either one had done anything good or bad and we know Jacob and we know Esau we know what they both deserved but God chose one over the other in chapter 9 verse 16 we see this promise from God this does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. Great Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about this text. The remnant, just a theological word that means a remainder. The remnant is the result of God's choice. It is not that a few have decided to hold on to truth. Nobody would hold on to it if God did not hold on to them. And so the hope here for Paul is that though many Jews had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, 
Not all had rejected Jesus. Back in Elijah's day, though the majority had fallen into idolatry, not all had fallen into idolatry. For those foreknown by God, chosen by God, and set apart by God are being kept by God. So that when we come to the book of Acts, let's say Acts chapter 2 verse 41, on the day of Pentecost, the gospel is preached to a mostly, if not all, Jewish audience. And though there are some, many, maybe even the majority, who said these people are drunk, there were at least 3,000, right? 3,000, that's not a small number, who were converted in one day by one sermon and added to the church. In Acts chapter 4, verse 4, still dealing with the, uh, an audience of mostly Jews, after the healing of a lame man, how many more are added to the church of Jews? 2,000. In Acts 21, verse 20, there's a report that comes to the apostles about how many thousands of Jewish people are coming to faith in Jesus as the Christ, their Messiah, the anointed one they've been waiting on. You see, even as we go through the rejection and the persecution in Acts, every page we turn, there is the unchanged and the undeterred plan of the grace of God. And when we say that word grace and we sing about amazing grace and the wonderful grace of Jesus, sometimes I don't even know that we know what we're saying. It's just sort of become this spiritual religious word that we say that, that we don't really have a definition for. But this grace we look at in these texts is not just some wishful, hopeful, religious, spiritual force out there. This grace is the unstoppable, effectual power of God to save sinners. This grace is not just some humble offer that's placed out there, though it is. It's not just the potential for salvation. It's not just the offer of salvation, but it is God's grace and God's power to actually save the worst sinner. And so there's hope for Paul. There's hope for you today, too. You look around and things seem hopeless and lost and wicked and there's sin everywhere and there's unbelief everywhere. And we look in our world filled with lostness and a seemingly impenetrable darkness in our world, in our community, maybe even in your family and your friends, maybe even amongst your children or your grandchildren, your parents, your grandparents. And you say, God, it's impossible. They won't listen. They won't hear. They're so lost. They're so turned off to this. And we look at the world and we're told, you're on the losing side. You're on the wrong side of history. You're in the minority. You are powerless. Remember, none of that, not even your own sin and stubborn unbelief, can stop the mercy and the grace of God to have his people. Those whom he foreknew, those whom he chose in his grace, those whom he is keeping right now by his own sovereign power. The Bible does not hold back on this. It may seem like a lost cause sometimes. Paul felt that despair for his own people. 
But Paul says we don't serve a God who is bound by the wickedness of society. We don't serve a God who is bound and held back by the unbelief and the hard hearts of sinners. No, Paul says we serve a God whose grace and power can break the hardest heart. And Paul points back to Elijah and says, look, if God could preserve a people then. Paul says, if God could save me now, then nothing and no one is outside of the saving power of God. That's reason for hope, Paul says. To this day, verse 5, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God is still in the saving business. And so I encourage you to pray that way. It's amazing in all these debates that people have over election and this system and that system and this person and that person and all the things that you can get into with these theological ideas and some are worth getting into and understanding better. But it's amazing how when we come to pray for lost people, we kind of tend to all pray the same way, don't we? How do you pray? No matter what your view on election and predestination and all this stuff is, how do you pray for the lost? Oh, God, save them. God, open their eyes. God, soften their hearts. God, show them the light. God, give them an opportunity. We all pray the same way. God has to do this. And God has promised that he will. And so we can pray that way. We can worship that way. We can proclaim the gospel that way. That all sounds fine and good, but then we're confronted with this reality. Number two today, why not all? Paul says in verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, he says. There's reason for hope and there's reason for trust in the power of the gospel to save people. And we confess that God will save his people for himself by his own unstoppable mercy. But not all will be saved. So what do we make of that? Which one is it, Pastor? God has the power to save or not everybody will be saved? Is this some failure on God's part? Is this some failure on the part of the Bible or the gospel to actually do the thing God sends it out to do? No. Remember, remember, if anyone is saved, it is because of God's sovereign choosing and mercy. But if anyone is lost, they only have their own unbelief and sin to blame. Verse 7, Paul says, the elect of Israel obtained righteousness, but not all. In Elijah's day, the vast majority had turned to idols, but there were only 7,000 that God had preserved by his grace. In Paul's day, there were many thousands upon thousands of Jews that had rejected Jesus as their Messiah, yet not all had because there was Paul, and there were the thousands that had been converted already. What about in our day? We look around in a city of 14, 15,000. We have about 150 in worship today. 
Several churches in town have 200, 400, 300, however many. It pales in comparison to the majority that are not anywhere today. That doesn't mean they're not saved. But we look at those numbers and we say, man, we're in the minority. How do we deal with that? These promises of God to save people. And we look around and we don't see it necessarily happening. Who is responsible for this unbelief? Look at the rest of verse 7. Or verse 8, I'm sorry. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. Verse 10, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Paul stringing together a list of quotes from Isaiah 29, Deuteronomy 29, and Ezekiel 12. We look at those texts, we look at the verses that that Paul puts forward there, and in every case, it's God who is the actor. And so when we ask the question, who's responsible for this unbelief and this sin and this unrighteousness? And you may look at those verses and you may come away and you might think, is God responsible For their unbelief? Is God responsible for this hardness of heart? After all, in verse 7, it says the rest were hardened by God. We've already seen this in chapter 9, haven't we, with the example of Pharaoh. And we remember, don't we, before, before God stepped in and began to harden Pharaoh's heart, What did the text tell us in Exodus? That Pharaoh had already hardened his own heart. Pharaoh was not some neutral, willing, sympathetic man who would have obeyed God had God not hardened his heart. You know that's not Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh was already rejecting, disobeying an enemy, hardening his own heart before God ever had to do anything. The same is true of sinners today and unbelievers today. They're not in a neutral category. People who don't know Jesus are not on this this road and there's this fork between them and they have this just neutral ability to do as they please. That is not the way the Bible presents it. Ephesians chapter 2 says this this is the reality. Ephesians 2, Paul says people without Christ are dead in their sins and trespasses. And if they follow anything, Paul says, it's the course of the world. It's the work of Satan. And so, Romans 9, 15, while God shows mercy to some, he may judge others by further hardening them in their sin and unbelief. Not that they weren't already unbelieving, Not that their hearts weren't already hardened. That is the case. But God in his judgment can say, Romans chapter 1, remember those repeated phrases? God can hand them over to that unbelief. God can give them exactly what they want in their sin and their unrighteousness. This comes as a warning for some in this room today. Those listening today. Refusing the gospel. Hardening yourself against the word of God and the preaching of the gospel of God. Listen, do not think that God owes you more time. 
Do not think this morning that God owes you more chances. Do not think that God owes you more opportunities. He does not. The truth is today that every breath you take, you are breathing sheerly by the grace of God. Let alone the fact that you have a chance now to hear the gospel. Let alone that you were raised in a Christian home or brought up in a church or went to vacation Bible school or listened to this radio station or watched this TV show where you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and you've had time after time after time, chance upon chance, grace upon grace upon grace. And yet you still refuse. Be warned today. God will not always strive with you. Be warned today. You may not have more chances. You may not have more opportunities. And you may yet come to find yourself here in verse 8 with a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear. You might find yourself in verse 9 where your table becomes a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution. Verse 10, your eyes darken so that you cannot see and your backs bent in weakness so that you cannot look up. Be warned. The opportunity has presented itself. Now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. And there may not be another. But the good news is you are hearing today. You hear, you're seeing the gospel. The command is to believe it. Listen, grace is here today. I'll be the first one to admit that there is great mystery and a lot of confusion and a lot of debate in these doctrines of election and (laughs) retribution and reprobation. There's a lot of debate in God's sovereign grace and saving some and hardening others. But listen, what's not a mystery is the invitation. Chapter 10, verse 13. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lastly, today we see in that God's gracious plan of inclusion. You see, the whole point of the gospel is not about excluding anyone. On the contrary, it's about including people by the grace of God. There's a plan and there's a purpose behind Israel's hardening. Verse 11, I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. What was God's sovereign purpose in Israel's rejection of the gospel? Oh, so that the Gentiles might be brought in. But God says, even though there's been a stumbling there on behalf of the Jews, it is not a fatal fall. Some did believe in the time of Moses. Some did believe in the time of Elijah. Some did believe in the time of Paul. Listen, even today, there are many Jewish people who have faith in Jesus as the Messiah. But there are some who don't. But even in that... Then and now, God is working out his plan to have his one people in Jesus Christ. 
In that day, it might have been clear to some of these Jewish Christians in the book of Acts and throughout the epistles, it might have been clear to them that if, if Israel had not rejected Jesus and the Gentiles were not brought in in the way that they had, we might have gone through the entire New Testament thinking this is just a Jewish thing. In fact, many of the early Jewish Christians thought this was just a Jewish thing. But to their surprise, especially in Acts chapter 15, verse 11, Peter and the apostles proclaim, look, we can't deny that salvation has come to the Gentiles too. The same thing that happened to us on Pentecost is happening to them. And we know that this was God's plan all along. In Amos chapter 9, the prophet Amos in verse 11 says, On that day I will repair David's tent. I will repair his booth, his family, his generation. We know that to be fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, the son of David. But what happens in Amos chapter 9 verse 12? Look at what this promise says, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by his name. You know what nations is? That's Gentiles. All the peoples, all the nations. From the very beginning of God's promise, this was there all along. That right along with his people Israel would be this great conversion of the Gentiles. It was promised in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 to Abram, in you. All the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we look in the book of Acts, we see a pattern. Specifically in chapters 14 and 18, Paul goes to the synagogue, he preaches to the Jews, they reject him, he goes out and he starts preaching to the Gentiles. And he says as much there in Acts 18, doesn't he? He says, fine, you don't want to believe in Jesus? I'll take this to the Gentiles. They will believe, and sure enough, they do. And so even as God's own people are rejecting Jesus, their Messiah, the Gentiles are coming in masses to Jesus as the Messiah. And Paul says here in the last part of verse 11, there's something remarkable in this, that as the trespass has brought Gentiles to make Israel jealous, verse 12, if their trespass means riches for the world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Do you see this wonderful promise Paul makes? That in their rejection, the Gentiles were included. But in the Gentiles' inclusion, the ultimate fulfillment of that will be what? More inclusion of the Jews. God chose and used their nation for a particular purpose. Look at chapter 9, verses 4 through 5. They are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, forever blessed. Amen. God used that nation. He chose that nation. He brought his promise through that nation. And so Paul says here, of the Jews... This hardening, this judgment is temporary, and revival is coming. Charles Simeon, great preacher of the word in the 19th century, said this, The Jews, when the gospel was preached to them, rejected, blasphemed, and opposed it with all their might. But when they themselves shall be converted by it, they will embrace it most cordially. They will cry mightily to God for the success of it, and they will labor to the uttermost to diffuse the knowledge of it throughout the world. 
It can be confusing when we come to the New Testament and we start talking about Israel. There's at least four uses of the word, maybe even more. We could be talking about the ancient people Israel, the ancient nation of Israel, the remnant of faithful Israel, the modern state nation of Israel created in 1948. So when we say Israel, we have to be careful. When Paul says Israel, he's talking about a redemptive category. And he's already told us that it's more than race and ethnicity. It is way more than that. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, he says. Here's the thing, though. While it might be more than race and nationality, Paul says it is not less than that. Elijah was a Jew. Those 7,000 were Jews. Paul was a Jew. The apostles were Jews. We see the conversion of them in Acts, and even now we see Jews every single day coming to faith in Christ as the Messiah. And so while there are different views on all this, we do not have time to go into all those views. All the signs point to a hopeful revival among the Jews as many and many come to faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. But listen, listen, even if I'm wrong, and even if that's not part of the plan, I'm praying for that. No matter all the views and all the debates we could have about Israel and the church and the Gentiles and all these things, and what we'll get into next week with the tree and the branches and the grafting in, if we're all wrong, shouldn't we at least be praying every day for more and more Jewish people to come to faith in Christ, along with anyone that's lost? God, revisit your people, renew your people, revive your people, redeem your people, especially in these days of conflict. But listen, the promise and the hope we see here is not limited to Israel, and it's not limited to those views. In fact, the whole point is, no matter how dark and no matter how lost and no matter how hopeless it all may seem, God is at work saving a people for himself. And listen very carefully to me. God will not fail to do that. Yes, some will, because of their own unbelief and sin, some will reject the gospel, and they will miss it. But many, because of God's kindness and grace, will hear and will believe, not because of their works, but because of God's grace. This gives us confidence today that no matter what things look like in the world, we can trust God is at work Accomplishing his will, bringing his people in. Listen, this means that today there's hope. As yet, there is hope for unbelieving Israel. There's hope for your family and your friends. God is working, God is moving. The question isn't whether God is doing his thing, the question is are you working? Are you proclaiming? Are you sharing? Are you proclaiming the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ? Are you, as we talked about last week, being the voice of God to call in the sheep? We're not alone in this, Elijah. The end has not yet come, Elijah. Get up, go to work. Get up, arise, church, and go to war. With God's power, with God's spirit, with God's gospel. Proclaiming salvation in Jesus' name. The fight is not over. 
song we're about to sing says, when faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. And Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Let us pray for that end. Let's glorify God to that end. Our God and our Father, we love you and we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus, which has the power by your Holy Spirit to break the hardest heart and to save the worst sinner. God, that's our prayer today. If there there are those here who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus, that they would stop refusing. They would stop rejecting today and by your grace and your mercy, you would draw them to yourself. Even right now as we sing and pray. And God, for those of us who know you, may you fill us with a strength and a power and a confidence in your work and in your grace to go and proclaim the gospel to the hardest heart. Maybe the person in our family, maybe a friend, a coworker. It may mean accepting a call to go into ministry, accepting a call to go to full-time missions. God, do it today. Strengthen us and call us according to your will and your power and your gospel. God, we trust you. We rejoice that you are saving your people and you will save your people for yourself and for your glory. Encourage us today by that truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806 